these places, these most sacred of spaces, where once we treaded lightly, somehow lost their reverence and just became irrelevant. And somehow, someone saw fit to look at a cemetery and pave over it. The dead were laid to rest and were to be left undisturbed. But as soon as their voices went unheard, the unspeakable happened. First, there's no mowing. And then after a time, there are no gravestones showing. Plucking out the grave markers makes it harder to remember where are the boundaries. That's also why the walls get knocked down. No document upkeeping as the decades creep on now it's been a while and no one can recall where all the once hollowed grounds lay. Or they just lie and allow the places to be turned up by a plow. Now the community is growing. Homes and schools need to be built, but where are they going? There it is, a nice green field just waiting to be filled. But that untouched lot got secrets in the ground. All the records are not lost they are scattered, but they can be found. Standing at the gates, how could the fates align that so many names could be lost to time? Now just entries in a ledger, their names are all that remain because some were just buried in a shroud. So after time has done its work, there are few, if any, remains. Perhaps this is the plan. This is the must of dust returning to dust that will all get lost to time. I hope there is a record of me after I cease to be more than ink stains in some book that gets no looks or a serial number deep in some Excel spreadsheet in a database that goes to waste because no one knows its name. I hope the same is true for you that you live on beyond the days where your eyes see the dawn that your name is spoken by those you hold dear. We can do better by so many measures to remember those who are not here. These are people and not just landfill. Their memories fill hearts and minds and the least we can do is respect where they rest lest we succumb to a similar fate and be scraped from the rolls of the living. Welcome to Journeyman's Journal. This is a trek from inner places to outer spaces in search of insights and inspirations. And in this moment, as I'm making this recording, it just kind of dawned on me that uh, death is a topic that I've covered in in detail. I spoke in uh, the Keystone episode that ended season one about how death is my oldest friend. And if you didn't listen to that episode, please go back and hear it. Uh, but here I'm speaking about death in a very different way. I want to say thank you for joining me on this first leg of a two part journey. And thank you again for all of all of you who shared the last episode. To date, Fisher King is the episode with the highest listenership. And that happened because you shared it. You I saw it on Facebook. I saw 
uh, where people were talking about it on Instagram. And uh, that just inspires me to keep bringing you stories like this. So I truly, truly appreciate it. One of my goals with the show is that educators can use it with their students. As a kid who grew up uh, watching PBS and then as an adult who listens to NPR on almost a daily basis, I know how a program like this can expand our knowledge and understanding of the world. That's what I want to do. You have given me the gift of your time, and I want to make sure I fill it in a way that's really meaningful. If you're a teacher or a professor or know someone who is, please share the show and the infographics with them. More importantly, let me know how I can do it better. If there's any way that I can work on those uh, images or even improve the content of this show, I'd love to hear it. With every episode, there is a sound effect like this that lets you know that whatever is being discussed in that moment has a visual element that goes deeper. And you can always find that on my website, jmansjournal.com, on Instagram or the Facebook page. Right now, I'm doing a special giveaway to anyone who helps spread the word about Journeyman's Journal. In all the ways I've already mentioned, Facebook, Instagram, uh, you can email it, you can text it, however you want to share it with people. If you would like to get a free bookmark with a miniature poem made by yours truly, all you have to do is join the mailing list and share the show. Go to the website, jmansjournal.com. That's J-M-A-N-S-J-O-U-R-N-A-L, jmansjournal.com. Scroll down a little bit and you'll see a bright yellow button that says join mailing list. Once you do that and I get an email from you, then I'll send you the details on how the, how to share the show and you can email me back with your information on where I can send your gift. If you like the sound of that and want to be a financial supporter of Journeyman's Journal, you can do that on Patreon and not only will you get the bookmark, but you'll also get uh, some of my original writings and a few other um, extra uh, audio recordings and uh, a, a wonderful variety of things that I'm really uh, just trying to build up the content and make it a special experience for every listener. I want to give a warning that this episode does, of course, touch on some sensitive topics concerning death and if um, and how those who have passed away made their transition. So if this might be a difficult topic for you or if you have younger ears listening, this may not be the best episode, but it is uh, it's one that has moved me because there is a great deal to cover. And I want to pay proper respect to the subject matter. Grave Findings is a two-part episode. I've been waiting to bring this to you since well before season two started. One of the unfortunate truths about time is that people are forgotten. More specifically, the places where they're laid to rest are forgotten. Sometimes this forgetting is a consequence of just the march of time, but it can also be intentional because real estate is valuable. Part one features Ray Reed, who's a regular guy that wanted to do something to beautify the community and in doing so ended up uncovering the unexpected. That would have otherwise just remained hidden in databases and file cabinets, even though the spaces that he's uncovering are right here in plain sight. 
places that you've driven right past if you've spent any amount of time in Tampa. Part two gets more technical and features anthropologist Becky O'Sullivan and her colleagues who do the hard work of scanning and ground truthing and uh, the painstaking effort of sifting mounds of sand to find the bits and pieces of history that have been left behind. To say that what she finds goes so much deeper than what's in the ground is a real understatement. That episode is going to come out next week. When I first started this podcast, my goal was to touch on the four corners of civilization, faith, philosophy, culture, and science. And more so than with any other episode I've done so far, I think this one really hits on all of those points. How we think of and care for those who have passed away and the places where they remain is touched by our houses of worship and our philosophies about um, life and death our thoughts and feelings about how we want to be remembered that's shaped by the country and culture we live in and informed by a number of professionals from the medical field, grief counselors, and those entrusted with the remains of our loved one. Be sure to stick around until the end of the episode so you can hear the back page of the journal. Back page gives you additional insight into how I make the show the research that goes into each episode as well as the resources and that help inform me so that I can bring you this content. This section goes a lot deeper than what you'll hear in that preview of back page. And it's something special for the Patreon supporters, but again, teachers are my favorite people. So if you are an educator and you like to have access to the reference materials and anything else that I can share, Again, join the mailing list. Let me know you're an academic, whether that's in uh, K through 12 or in, at the college level, and I'll be happy to share all that content with you at no cost. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be just up the street from my neighborhood, and we're going to begin our journey of grave findings. As I'm driving down the street, looking for the location where I'm recording now, by the time I really start to pay attention, I realize I've already missed the place. And that, in some ways, is at the heart of this story. Things that are hidden in plain sight, that after decades can almost go unseen. Robles Cemetery is such a small place that I can honestly say I've driven right by here and never really realized it was a cemetery. Burials have been going on here since 1874 and didn't stop until 1971 officially. And this is not a gated community or some neighborhood far away from the heart of Tampa. Sly Avenue is a regular pass through. You can hear the cars probably in the background right now. And as I stand here, realizing how long this place has been a part of the community, it's the earth has started to reclaim it. You'll notice in the pictures of the front gate and with the gravestones and whatnot that the, the ground is starting to reclaim this place as its own. There are little ferns poking up through the bricks that surround the formal cemetery. Some of the gravestones have been toppled. There are huge oak trees coming up right next to the burial sites. And 
as I stand in this spot just outside of that brick wall, I wonder, am I standing on hollowed ground right now? Are there unmarked grave sites beneath my feet? Just in my daily scrolling of Facebook and news and whatnot, I came across the story of a lost graveyard here in Tampa and was just kind of amazed that, you know, one had been found right down the street from where I live. And it's not an unusual thing. Every once in a while you hear about a, a university or a church or, you know, there's construction happening. And then in the process of them turning, turning over the ground, they come across human remains or grave markers and it shuts everything down. But what stu stood out for me about this, that first time I heard about it here in Tampa was just a few months later that I heard that another graveyard had been found. And then there was another one. And it really just seemed to be that there were a lot more lost and forgotten graveyards in the Tampa Bay community than I could have possibly imagined. And I just felt like there's gotta be more to this story. So I'm here with Ray Reed, and he is in a large part been responsible for uncovering these forgotten places. And where we are now, Roble Cemetery, for him started off as a project to actually bring something positive to the community. Ray has lived here in Tampa since 1993, worked for Hillsborough County, and so he had a little familiarity with the, the machinery of government and how when you see a, a what looks like an empty lot can actually be uh, a community park and that's where he started that this is a residential area there's a community uh, housing co-op nearby but a lot of folks walk here but there's not very many places where someone can just have a seat walk their dog enjoy the outdoors in the process of trying to you know turn this empty corner lot into a beautiful community space he discovered there was more beneath the ground here. Ray, thank you for joining me on Journeyman's Journal and thank you for doing the work that you're doing. That uh, the dead don't always have to be forgotten and I feel that what you're doing is really bringing dignity and recognition back to uh, those who may in some cases not even have relatives to remember them anymore. When you started on your project to turn this into a park, and then realized that there was actually unmarked graves at this location. Do you remember that day or do you remember what it, what that initial feeling was, that revelation? I was actually disappointed because I was so looking forward to this being, it was going to be called Foundation Park. And since this is now in Old Seminole Heights, the Seminole Heights Foundation was going to be running the money through it for putting in fencing, benches, etc. Unfortunately, um, that won't be happening, but we may see this space beautified anyway, fenced in. Um, there is a sign going in uh, announcing that it is a cemetery. We, after 40 years of people driving on half of it and having weekend yard sales, used cars, and even finding homeless camped out here. Um, the city has stepped up and has remediated the lot much more aggressively than they had in the past. 
and it's actually a, a nice space. It doesn't it doesn't look so neglected anymore, mm -hmm. and I really want to thank the city of Tampa Code Enforcement for helping with that. Outstanding. Shout out to the, the crew down at uh, City of Tampa Code Enforcement. I think that this is one of the, the few memories I do have of, of this stretch of Sly Avenue is that during the holidays, uh, Valentine's Day in particular, you'll see all the little the tents pop up mm -hmm. with people selling baskets. And this would be like a perfect spot because this is this is a thoroughfare. You know, it's not a, a main avenue or, or a very busy road. But as you can hear from the traffic in the background, people are going by this place all the time. Now, the discovery that this was a un, kind of a forgotten graveyard actually led you to discover that there were quite a few more similar locations. Do you have like a count thus far of how many forgotten graveyards you found across the Tampa Bay area? Well, as far as finding them, there was started here and there's a website out there called Find a Grave. And unfortunately, it only lists people who have headstones. Mm -hmm. It doesn't include the total inventory at any cemetery that I've found so far. And, for example, with Memorial Park, I'm at 4,000 just going up into the upper 1930s. Finder Grave says there's 6,000 buried there in total. And there was just a recent article in the um, Tampa Bay Times where USF and a private entity have been down doing some ground-penetrating radar. And while the city has indicated it's going to step up and take over that uh, incredible rich place of history, if you get into the death certificates and not pay attention mm -hmm. to headstones, there's some awesome stories there. I mean, that's a two to three hour walking tour of black history. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that distinction between death certificates and gravestone markers is huge, especially where we are now, because the gravestones have gone missing, been stolen. So, you know, if, if it's really and then the data collection process, it makes sense to uh, look at gravestones, but it can also reveal a whole nother inventory, as it were, by looking at those death certificates. There's another site over on 22nd Avenue as well, correct? Yes, uh, actually, sorry, it's 22nd Street. 22nd Street. But the, from Hannah to Hillsborough, 22nd, which used to be called Livingston, over to 30th, from 1905 till just after World War II, that was all the county poor farm, county home and hospital. And from what we've gathered from locals, there was a white cemetery on 22nd, those headstones got erased one day with bulldozers. I have a few smashed ones in my garage that I'm holding on to. Behind it, October 11th, 1950, the new cemetery went in, which was black to the north, white to the south. And ironically, on October 10th, 1950, in the County Commission meeting minutes, uh, Commissioner Nuccio is asking for the disinterment of a cemetery that's on the poor farm along the county highway, mm -hmm. which would be Hillsborough Avenue. I, in my heart, believe that was somewhere between the tax collectors and post office. Um, they did a small little test, didn't find anything there, but there were way more black bodies buried than there were white bodies buried on that poor farm. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, ironically, that was the last that I'm aware of, and I hate some actually are lost, 
but most of this was a deliberate erasure. Mm -hmm. uh, the last... So why do you feel that those erasures were deliberate? Because land is valuable, and as I've said to many people, if you were black or brown, you were landfill. If you were white and you weren't connected or affluent, you were landfill. Um, there's several more cemeteries that are going to be coming to light in the next few months. Um, I don't have the physical strength to go to all the research, and I'm very happy that the reporter from the Tampa Bay Times is, has some of his staff and himself, and they're doing digging for um, plats, uh, deeds, etc. Mm -hmm. But I'm busy doing the inventory of the dead. So. Some of the locations where the graveyards have been discovered, one has become a housing development. And I, if, if I'm not mistaken, it was like public housing for a while, and that has since been demolished and is kind of being redeveloped. It is going to be demolished. Um, ironically, that was Zion. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to data sources that are available to anybody, free websites, um, You'll see map, old maps of Tampa, and you'll see a Catholic cemetery where Sacred Heart Academy is. And two blocks north of it, you'll see another cemetery indicated, and colored churches on that parcel as well. So when they said the lost Zion Cemetery, it was never lost. Mm -hmm. It was erased. Mm -hmm. And in 1951, and ironically, it was white-only housing back then in Robles Park, mm. they... They found three caskets 15 inches below the ground for infants and didn't stop construction. Just said, well, we heard it was a black cemetery. I guess they overlooked a couple. Mm -hmm. um, now, one of the other locations became a high school or it became a public school one, one, and it has been recently discovered there's yet another graveyard there. Yes, uh, that is Ridgewood, which city of Tampa owned it but it was in unincorporated Hillsborough County. And then Mayor Nuccio sold that parcel, which had the cemetery on it. There's, and it's a misstatement to say it's a, only a black cemetery. There was a white section in there as well. Um, 200 and some odd bodies at least. Woodlawn, Potter's Field was filling up. So I went back and looked at the death certificates. The whites who are indigent still went to Woodlawn, but they started moving the blacks who are indigent over out of the city limits to Ridgewood. That parcel was bought by a private entity, a, a corporation called Watmo, that had a bunch of uh, prominent families behind it for 55 grand. Mm -hmm. Two years later, so the city sells it to private, private two years later sells it for 112000 mm -hmm. back to the school district. Mm -hmm. And ironically, Watmo had dissolved. So that sale, those families' names are public record. And I'm surprised no one's called any of them out because some of them I see every day when I drive by multi-million dollar developments. Mm -hmm. So how people could own a cemetery for two years, drive by that land, for decades and nobody say a blessed thing about whatever happened to the cemetery that was there because that one did have markers. Mm -hmm. Not everybody gets a marker, but it's amazing how many people will go without to make sure that a loved one or a friend has something to memorialize them. Mm -hmm. So to say that there is more to this story, I think, 
I, we could fill 10 episodes talking about the living and, and who they were in life as well as where they have ended up. But part of this story, there's, I would say, I guess there's a crossover moment. I w- was reading in um, some of the information that you shared me that with the, uh, the location over on 22nd, you had started some initial work, identified some of the locations of the, the unmarked graves, but kind of in a moment when you were reflecting on that, and then um, I guess you had, um, you had an experience that led you to continue digging and wanting to know more because you felt like there was still more to be discovered there. Yes. Um, it's partly a curse I've had my whole life is I'm one of those people that, as a kid, why, why, what, and driving the adults crazy. At 55, I still have that bad habit, and... (laughs) It's a a bad habit that we share. (laughs) And I've discovered down here that if you accept our local history, um, basically, you're accepting fiction in many cases. There's things that are just... The real history of Tampa has so many beautiful and ugly and seedy episodes within it that nobody knows about, it's um, it's a crying shame. And I don't think the History Center is going to dare do anything with any exhibits on them. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a family that died on the river, uh, right below the dam. Uh, 50-ish man, late 40s wife, teenage daughter. Strange story on the death certificates that the husband shot the wife and then tipped the boat, drowned him and the daughter. Mm. Ironically, one of our more shady undertakers, who shares the same last name as me but no relation, had the contract for both the sheriff, the jail, the county poor farm over here. Before the sun set the very same day, the high, not a deputy sheriff, the, the equivalent of a David G., signed all three death certificates and they were in the ground over allegedly at Marty Cemetery before the sunset. Mm-hmm. Why the rush? Unless somebody took aim from the shore because it was a black family in a white neighborhood and I've never heard of anybody. You're, I mean, can you imagine trying to drown yourself when you've got a, allegedly a handgun? Mm. Why not use it quick and easy and painless? It definitely seems out of sorts. It's, it, uh, it doesn't add up. And down at Memorial Park, you've got uh, Cyrus Green, who the uh, recreational facility was named for. You have also uh, Tom Bradley. Uh, Tampa Tribune wrote an article on him. We were hanging people downtown in 1921 still. And... He had confessed to the killing of a white man up in Lutz, and what he said and the newspaper recorded was probably one of the most eloquent, dignified, deathbed, literally, speeches, asking for forgiveness, um, apologizing. My God, this man had... He's another one with no marker, but... And, of course, they don't have records from what I understand that says this one went in A1, this one went mm-hmm. in A2 um, but would 
Memorial Park is just an incredible, incredible um, place that just really needs to be taken over by the city. And ironically, um, if the city says we're not in the business, uh, Jackson Heights Cemetery, if you go look at the city of Tampa on its park site for its cemeteries, they'll tell you it was given to them in 1942. It's mm -hmm. a white cemetery mm -hmm. without burial records. And I've now identified more death certificates. Let's say they've got 500 people on the city site. I've got another 500 they don't have. Mm -hmm. So I've doubled that population. And so the city did set precedence in taking a cemetery as a gift uh, with poor record keeping. Mm -hmm. And the only difference here is uh, some of the occupants are lighter than the others. Mm -hmm. And right is right. Again, I'm here with Ray Reed of Hillsborough County, Tampa, Florida, and he has discovered that there are numerous forgotten, built over, erased purposefully sometimes cemeteries in our community. But the story is much deeper than even the, the economic or the political or kind of issues that drive how those decisions got made. For him, this story is also about a, a communing with the dead. He had some experiences where those who have crossed over have spoken back. Is that something that started for you in the midst of this project or were you always sensitive to the um, those voices from the other side before this even happened? I wouldn't say I was sensitive, but I grew up in a very dysfunctional household. Um, a lot of abuse, not, not from my dad. He was a great guy, but uh, I was one of those kids that just buried himself in books and I enjoyed spending time with elderly relatives and when they passed on, I kept talking to them. I didn't really get a voices back, just sometimes you ask somebody for help who's passed on and lo and behold, you get what you needed. And I can speak to my, I have that own experience in my life. I believe in the presence of my ancestors as being relevant to my existence now. I agree wholeheartedly. And the biggest issue was Mamie George Alice, who is in the county cemetery along 22nd Street. Um, when I told Hillsborough County there's a cemetery there, the reply I got was, no, there isn't. Uh, it's been in the county's control, that parcel, since 1905, and it's been on their mow list. But the 1950 through 66 cement markers that have three or four digits inscribed on them corresponding to a human being, which is kind of like Florida Department of Corrections, but for the dead. Mm. Um, the, the county got a list back from some genealogy group, and... There's a lot of names in there that are gross misspellings or typos and or just pronounced, pronounced wrong. So we may never know everybody who is in there. But one of the women who's in there, she spent, she grew up, or I'm not sorry about growing up, she lived at the 900 block of Bird Street in Sulphur Springs. 
and she went into Tampa General and spent six months there mm -hmm. before she died. Her name's Mamie Georgialis and was buried by Lord and Fernandez Funeral Home. And on the funeral home record, there was something about daughter Velma, it's like actress, New York City. Well, I was working on trying to correct any of the errors on this Excel spreadsheet that I was provided with. And I was also at the same time trying to go through the Burgett Brother photos that are online via the library. 10,000 of them because I didn't know what anything was going to be called. So I would spend several hours a night in my bed just scrolling through. And it was funny because I said, I can only do one. And I'm laying in bed and I said, guys, I got to stop the spreadsheet for a while and focus on the photos. Now, 10 minutes later, loud bang from the other end of the house. I, my roommate then came out of his room thought maybe a tree limb fell on the roof, somebody shot at the house. No, it was a thick commercial grade drinking glass exploded into pieces no bigger than a one carat diamond. At the back of a cabinet, it was glass fronted, nothing else broke. Mm. That was weird. And then I went and back to my room, lay down and started looking at the Burger Brothers photos. And I just crossed into the bees and the third and fourth photos I looked at were for the very block of Bird Street, the 900 block, taken about six months before Mamie went in the hospital. And why these photographers are looking at that sorry, broke down block is beyond me, but there's a woman about 70 years old walking out between two buildings and she's glaring at the camera. Mm -hmm. And it was just a little creepy. But I also realized in parcel 671, which is where they had Mamie, she died in 1959. 671 was assigned in 1957. Mm -hmm. And there was a black female infant there. Now they will double stack. They might do side by side, but they are not in those days ever going to put two persons of different races in the same spot. Mm -hmm. That's just as you might be optimistic and pie in the sky, but nope, ugliness, even in death. Mm -hmm. And realized as I was sorting this Excel spreadsheet that for that very week that Mamie died, 870 was the week before and 872, ah, Mamie's under 871. Mm -hmm. So, thought, but I, I apologize. I thought that was going to calm things down because I just kept getting glimpses of things some you know out of the corner of my eye and just creepy feelings they didn't go away mm -hmm. what the heck does Mamie want now the graveyard where Mamie is now is one that you had already identified worked with the county on and had you know they came they did they started mowing it again and put some energy into uh, recognizing it didn't they rename it as well they renamed it but I believe it's not named correctly. Mm -hmm. It's the historical cemetery, historical cemetery for all peoples. Well, no, it became in October 11th, 1950, both black and white, although segregated on the back side of that parcel. Prior to that, the white cemetery was on 22nd and the black cemetery was along the county highway, which would mean Hillsborough Avenue. 
And ironically, the first, the other thing that made me feel something wasn't right was working in county government. Nothing is ever easy. If somebody sends you something, an invoice that ends in zero, or, you know, yeah, it started on January 1st. We picked up the shovel. No, you didn't. Um, the first person as on their list that the county got for the new cemetery where they were going to actually have markers with numbers was a Mr. Henry Hadley, who's number 501. And we have been looking for years for 501. We've unearthed 615 cement markers and relayed out that portion of the cemetery. And by the way, USF a few years ago did ground penetrating radar in the front section. And yeah, there's folks there too. But uh, yesterday I found 501. Mm -hmm. It was moved up next to the front gate because when they put the fencing in along the back for um, mental health care now, uh, Brace Point, a lot of those markers that were two inches, a foot, 18 inches below grade got upended and um, any of the markers that were above grade, they were moved to the wing walls, which should not have happened because that's where those people were. So we're trying to backfill where they might actually be. If it's a colored adult female, we look at, okay, then a sequence of numbers that was given and, okay, it should be here or here. We can get it within five or 10 feet. So Mamie really kind of helped to clue you in that there was, a, there was more to be discovered than even, I guess, your initial investigation and, and what, uh, into where people were and when they were placed there. And um, it's, so, I mean, there's still kind of, even though the, the city and the county has recognized that there is, and tried to correct the mistake, there's still more work to be done. Oh, there's a ton of work to be done. And that was one of the things that irritated me um, when speaking with some of the folks at the Housing Authority or other community activists about Zion. I said, do not make the same mistake I did. I was so, I was so pleased and proud with the day after they had the uh, rededication. And I suddenly realized, I just kept getting nauseous, and I realized something's not right. And what wasn't right is I got a nice little pat on the head. It's all good. This is the cemetery. Well, no, it's not. Because if you look at the historic historical marker, which the county did the research for, that 2.35-acre parcel is identified as being one acre. Mm -hmm. um, it talks about stone markers for people. No, they're cement, and they were stamped by somebody who couldn't even figure out whether they were putting the number on right side up or upside down sometimes. And I don't know if you've been watching the news, but Hart Island in New York, their million body um, potter's field. Mm -hmm. Mamie's daughter's there. That's what Mamie wanted. Mm. And they have a iCloud project where people are encouraged to put something about the people who are there down. And the minute that I put down about Velma and uh, Mamie's side of the family, and hit enter, everything got calm in my house again. Mm -hmm. Now, what has really been awesome, 1938, Louis Schwartz, theater magician. His granddaughter contacted me, she lives in Pinellas County. 
1939, I'm not going to mention the name here, a gentleman had five kids and a wife pregnant with a sixth and walked out on them in 1909 and his family had been looking for him ever since. Mm. 110 years later, by finding a death certificate online and loading that information in a find a grave, his great-great-granddaughter contacted me. She has the same last name as him. I've found votives on some of the infant graves because parents might be in their 80s or 90s, siblings would be in their 50s or 60s, uh, we're not talking about ancient history. The last person buried there was December 27th, 1966. Mm-hmm. And, so, his mar- and his marker was two and a half inches underground. So even though we're talking about the dead and how the places they have been entrusted to have been uh, forgotten, erased, built over, their memories are still alive. People still care. And... It's it really is drawing that connection between the past and the present that especially I think for older generations who um, that's one of the hardest things about getting older. I think I'm I'm just I've lost a couple of people here recently myself um, and it makes me realize just how um, relative time is that the people who were you know that i thought of as being adults and elders are or being adults are now elders the people who were elders are now in many cases no longer with us and you know i'm raising a daughter and she's going to have that similar experience where you know now we're just her parents in 20 years you know we're going to be the elders and those that we look up to now are going to be on the other side that um It just kind of strikes me in this moment how those connections across time are still relevant, even though we think of maybe 1930 or 1905 or 1870 as being so long ago. For some people, that is is living memory or that person who, um, you know, is still strongly, you know, has left a fingerprint on their life or in their family in a way that is very relevant to them. I agree. And we've sanitize death to such a degree that it's no longer part of life. When you look at the death certificates, the ones I could find for the people here at Robles, uh, it also should be called Brickyard Cemetery, and others from Zion, Robles Pond, St. Joseph's, these, especially up here, we were so far away from an undertaker. You had one in Plant City, you had a couple downtown. It was an entire day just to schlep they didn't take the body down there. They called and got a coffin or a shroud brought up here, maybe some burial clothes, because the people went in the same day or the next day. We didn't have modern refrigeration, and you didn't want to have somebody hanging around for four or five days waiting for family to come in from out of town. The other thing I've discovered is in Seminole Heights and some of the other more historic areas in Tampa, there those old, old rose bushes or big oak trees that somebody planted outside your bungalow, they're stillborn infant, maybe under it. Because there's an awful lot of them where the father is listed as the undertaker mm. and they list the uh, address as the cemetery of where the house is. That kind of sends chills up my spine. One, there are tons of giant oak trees around Tampa. We're sitting under one literally at this moment. 
there's a huge one in my front yard and I know our home has been there since the 1940s, I believe. And I guess knowing that, you know, the infant mortality rate, thank God, thank, thankfully for modern medicine, it has, it has plummeted, uh, but it wasn't uncommon for somebody to lose a, a child very early on. Not just a child losing their entire family over the span of seven or eight years due to, as you said, the most ridiculous things, a 99-cent cream of a tube of generic antibiotic ointment cream there's a woman from 1935, she slapped a mosquito on her face and then scratched it, it got infected, her face went septic and she was dead a week later. Mm -hmm. That's more the norm than the exception. And, and you can really see that in a lot of the grave markers that are here that people were dying in their 30s and 40s. Who's Garda's family? He's gone through two wives and at least seven children between the two wives. And the kids aren't even making it out into past teen years, most of them in a year or two old. Mm -hmm. the, the amount of the societal things, if anybody today with our uh, social issues, if you realize how many white housewives died of purpural uh, infection and going septic, from trying to terminate that pregnancy they didn't want. Mm. And three days later, after a midwife or their fr female friend or themselves punctured something, they're dead. They weren't very kind though. Illegal abortion is written on the front of the death certificate, usually in wow. large um, print. And it's just, it's just so sad. We talk about the 20s and 30s, especially here in Seminole Heights, is the good old days and, oh, mm. we love that history. Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. Yeah, that history definitely has a dark side. And, uh... So are you still getting those messages from the other side? Are the dead still speaking with you about um, where they are and, and kind of helping you guide and connect you to what's going on beneath the ground? They're not guiding and connecting so much what's going on beneath the ground, but they're agitated. And I have friends who party. I have friends who are sober as a LDS bishop. You know, no caffeine, no alcohol. And they're catching glimpses of things in the corner of their eye. When the County Poor Farm Cemetery first came to light, People would come in my house and ask, you got a TV on in the other room? I said, nah, it's just them. <laughs> it was literally just background, like white noise going on. And if people think I'm nuts, that's their problem. I treat them with, uh, whoever's in my home, uh, whether flesh and blood or otherwise, I treat them with respect. They, they haven't caused me, the dead haven't caused me any problems. In fact, it's kind of comforting having them around because I'm, I'm on borrowed time myself, and I don't. I lost the fear of dying. I don't want it to be. I don't want it to be painful, mm -hmm. but I'm not afraid to go. Mm -hmm. We go on. We don't just stop. Has your work in this project helped bring you to that place? Oh, absolutely. The work on this project is no cleric, no amount of reading or meditation. It's having a house full of people who are just hanging around and waiting for this thing to be done. 
And unfortunately, I keep pulling a thread and a few hundred more come tumbling out. Mm -hmm. Not in my house, but on death certificates or we've, we have now Montana Cemetery, trying to, USF's working on trying to find that one's location. Um, watch the newspapers. Um, there's going to be a whole bunch more coming out. Mm -hmm. And... It's almost like I, I sent an email to somebody, who was you? And I said, if Stephen King ever needed fodder for one, another book about a town with a shady history and a whole bunch of secrets buried in it, he moved to Sarasota already, so it's a short hop. Come to Tampa. Mm -hmm. It's been a few weeks since I initially made the recording with Ray while we were standing out at Robles, also known as the Brickyard Cemetery on Sly Avenue. And I wanted to get some final thoughts from him on the inventory of the dead, the numerous lost or rediscovered graveyards and cemeteries that he's been finding, and thousands of hours, I'm sure, in thousands of records found, numerous death certificates and documents reviewed, Ray has done a tremendous amount of work. What is the status of this project now, Ray? Thankfully, I'm wrapping up. I only have May through December of 1930 left. Unfortunately, I have a tendency to not say no to people, and the Vision Zero project about uh, pedestrian and auto fatalities here in Hillsborough County, uh, City of Tampa. I'm looking also for 1930, not just for the dead within the raced cemeteries or the cemeteries I refer to as sketchy or compromised, but also at the cause of death for everybody, even if they're in a traditional cemetery like Rose Hill, Orange Hill, Myrtle Hill, etc. Uh, you know, by death by auto, death by drowning. So 1930 has been a bit of a drag. And also with this COVID mess, I'm speaking to you from the beautiful little town of Osceola Mills, Pennsylvania. And I'm relocated to my mm -hmm. great-grandparents' farm because I've got three of those categories that are a possible no-no uh, if you have them, like being over 65, which I'm not. But in some of the other medical conditions I have, diabetes, heart disease, and something else, and it's, I wanted to stick around long enough to get it done. So I ran away 800 miles. Mm -hmm. So you got to protect yourself so you can, just in general, but also so it, I imagine it's maybe a hurdle for the work that you're doing, uh, not being here in the Tampa Bay area. The community library has open, is open four hours a day, and I have to go inside and use their internet, and no air conditioning, and it's in an 1876 building, a former mansion by one of the bigwigs here in town. Mm -hmm. And uh, But everybody has been just so nice, so polite, so understanding, and it, it's really great to see small-town America hasn't changed. I need to take that back, however. One of the and that's a, an effort on your part. Uh, well, 
it's ironic because one of the small convenience stores on the outskirts of town has a display of marijuana and meth pipes. So, you know, societal ills have impacted everywhere, but the people haven't changed here from what I remember coming out as a kid on vacation. And I also got to see my great-grandparents' graves and spend time there. Your, as you're doing this project, I guess maybe change the way you think or feel about your own loved ones who have passed away when you're visiting their graves? I feel a sense of just thanksgiving that even some of them maybe have visited once or twice a year, and the cemeteries are so forlorn. The wooden crosses that I remember as a kid has rotted away, but a lot of these people, I come from poor people, and like my great-grandfather's headstone is made out of cement by three of my great-uncles in 1937. It's still standing. The idea of somebody taking a headstone, whatever it was made of, and just desecrating the grave, the memory of that person, it's, I think they'd string the person up out here. But in Tampa, we've had a wholesale erasure and removal of them. Uh, I've heard from some folks they remember as kids in the 50s seeing some used for erosion control along the Hillsborough. I have some smashed ones from the Hillsborough County Poor Farm Cemetery on 22nd. Um, but there's so, so many out there somewhere, and someone has to know what happened. Uh, it's not an elderly person. I'm sure somebody with a few drinks in them at a Thanksgiving dinner or something told their grandkids about something that took place or they saw. Because it's it's unthinkable that we had the funeral home industry, we had members of the clergy, and we had our elected officials. Nobody knew a damn thing. You're buried in a cemetery one week, the next week, it's now somebody else's cemetery, or they're going to start putting homes on it, even if it's 20 years later. I understand the black community having no voice. Things were horrible down there then, and some degrees still are. But the white community, it's... What the heck town that I picked 26 years ago to move to? I mean, it really just turned mm. my stomach when I think of... You know, how in one hand we talk about how we're a caring, loving community, but don't go digging too deeply into what we did a generation or two ago. Um, I mean, Hillsborough County put the last body on 22nd Street on December 27th, 1966. I was already two years old at that point. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's That's living memory. 1966 is not, not that long ago. So the time period that you're working on now as you start to wrap this project up is the 1930s. Where, where well, let me back up for a second. I, it is the 1930s. Mm -hmm. There's two public records out there that the Mormons captured on their family search website. One is Florida Vital Statistics, 1877 through 1939, December 31st, all filed death certificates with vital stats. We didn't really start doing anything in earnest until September, October 1913 with sending stuff up to Jacksonville and having it recorded. And even so, 
There are people buried as late as 1939 where there's a funeral home record but no death certificate. Mm. So I'm using two public documents. What comes out of Elstat's state record and the city of Tampa burial permits, which are also out there, but they only started about 1910-11, indicating what cemetery Samoa went into. But mm-hmm. using those, I'm right now over 4,700 people who are in... And do they, go, and do they go beyond... Do they go beyond the 1930s, or is that kind of a cutoff point for you? That's a cutoff of what is publicly available. If somebody mm-hmm. gave a damn and actually went up to Jacksonville and camped out, or a group of students or something, they could go through manually January 1st, 1940 forward. And, and I imagine there's probably a, a, a point at which the documents are becoming digitized. So, I mean, if this were... Say, you know, 100 years from now, if somebody were doing the same research, they may have a bit of an easier time finding death certificates or records, burial, uh, those kinds of documents from now when. um, So how far back? What are some of the earliest uh, death certificates that you were able to identify? Uh, The 19th, there's a few 19 ones, like 1909, 1908. But those are only a small handful, and that's. Those were typically Marti, which uh, was sold to the city of Tampa. And the city of Tampa, when I moved down here, I heard rumors of the 900 people got displaced to put Michigan Avenue, i.e. Columbus Boulevard, through to Del Mabry, through the cemetery. And if you go and Google out on Wiki about Marti Cologne Cemetery, it's not too comforting reading. And I've got almost 700 death mm-hmm. certificates on people that the city say says aren't in their Marti Cologne Cemetery. Mm-hmm. Well, those would be people that I guess were either driving over or are underneath buildings to the north side or God knows what they did with their remains. Mm-hmm. But we're not talking about a bunch of stillborn infants, basically cartilage, just you can't find it within a year or two. We're talking mature adults. So there was some significant mm-hmm. shuffling going on. There's a third source of data that I didn't get into. I did initially for trying to find out who was Berkeley County Poor Farm, and that are the funeral home records. And unfortunately, most of the white funeral homes records have been donated, and um, but I would suggest don't ever, ever, ever use the ones that are down at the Tampa Library because somebody took the master record and they wrote into volume summary information. And when you compare the two, it seems like you had eighth graders doing an after-school detention project. Mm. They didn't spend the time or attention. You'll see city farm. No, that's county poor farm. But they saw CTY, so they thought about city. They didn't even know what they were looking at when they were trying to summarize things. And most bizarre of all, during a time period where someone was buried in the city, you should have a death certificate, you should have a burial permit, and you should also have a funeral home record. You may have one of those three, but not two of the three or three of the three. Mm-hmm. 
And how far back should those records have gone? Should that have preceded the 1900s and into the 1800s? Because, like, at Brickyard, there's a a marker that says that there were burials there as far back as 1871, I think it is. Yeah, 1872. Well, it Mm -hmm. may be earlier than that, because we know that's when there is an actual monument to somebody. And that was one of the monuments that's too heavy for somebody to cart off. And mm-hmm. uh, Murphy, as a matter of fact, the Reverend. Sorry, I rem- I'm sometimes I can't remember what I did this morning, but I remember a lot of these people. And it probably goes back before then, because if you think about that area, and you couldn't get downtown easily. And people were buried the day they mm-hmm. die. An undertaker would bring a box out, but he's not going to go pick a body up, bring it down. It wasn't. In, they were buried the same day. They weren't embalmed. Undertaker brought out maybe mm-hmm. clothing if they didn't have anything around to bury them in respectable, and uh, and the box, and that was it. And it could have gone on well before 1872 because that parcel of land was bought by a Mr. Christopher Gilsinger in the 1820s. And was left to his descendants. So, and the other thing that was neat was finding that there was, and it was a funeral home record, uh, there was a one colored listed. And I went back through the census in 1910 to that area. That area was white, mixed, black. It, every, it wasn't rich. It was just hard-working, everyday folk getting along together and trying to exist. And it makes sense mm-hmm. that, yeah, they'd have, it might have been segregated, but they would be in the same parcel. After going through so many records and databases and giving up your, your not just nights and weekends, but your days to bring life back to those who have passed on, is are there any people or stories in particular of those that you have kind of re-identified that stick with you as folks that should not be forgotten? Uh, yeah. There's a Mr., I think his last name is Brian. He's in uh, Memorial Park. He was an older black gentleman, apparently had been gotten drunk, killed a white merchant somewhere in the Lutzen area. And our sheriff and the jail was down on Pierce Street at that point hung him. And it's funny if you read the old county commission uh, meeting minutes, which are also online back to 1846, we're going to say, handwritten. You can look at them from home. Um, you see even in the 19-teens, the sheriff's requesting in his budget that the county fund a new gallows for him. Well, in 1921, less than 100 years ago, he hung this gentleman. Now, the Tampa newspaper captured what this gentleman said from the gallows, and it's one of the most eloquent. The dignity in this man, knowing that he's about to meet his maker and his wife is about to be over, and what's worse, it's being done in an audience full of people, and what he says is absolutely profound. And uh, when I send out the spreadsheet, I've got the link to the news article that captures what he said. He, unfortunately, is one of the unknown burials at Memorial Park. And that's one of the things that I wanted to make certain 
as I was going through all these, since it started in the fall of 1919, I recorded the death certificate by year, the death certificate number, and the age, and the race, uh, which is odd because you'll see certain funeral homes, and I'm calling people black, others colored, whatever, but I've captured every one of the death certificates that I saw online, and I'm at around 4,800 right now. And that's only going through 1939. So that cemetery is pretty well darn full, which mm. is, I believe, what the folks with the ground penetrating radar came to that conclusion. That they've got way more here than the uh, website Find the Grave has listed. Because that website only typically has people who have monuments. And we've got the problem of monuments eroding, being stolen, um, ending up under underground. Um, it's a temporary marker. It could be under a foot of soil as people got buried mm-hmm. next to it. It just got dirt on top of it and never was was uh, unearthed. So that's a huge, mm-hmm. huge project that needs to be community-wide, not black, not white. Everybody who is a human being who gives a damn should be out there working it, metal detecting gloves, et cetera, and, get, and try to get that place back to the dignity it deserves. It was the successor to Zion. Zion was filling up when this place, when Memorial opened, and it needs to be given the honor and the dignity that it deserves. Because the people that are there, it's amazing. It's the United Nations. Anybody of a darker pigmentation mm. from Cuba, from Central America, South America, um, Indian, and I don't, I mean, you know, like Bangladesh, New Delhi Indian. I don't mean. Uh, Excuse me, Bangladesh, we're getting that called Pakistani and Indian, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, Far East. Not Native American. Uh, Not Native American. And um, even there's a Chinese launderer, I believe, who's buried in there. But uh, it's it's the United Nations, uh, the Cuban community, the Puerto Rican community. Uh, Just about anybody who was Puerto Mm -hmm. Rican ended up in a black cemetery. And, uh, so it's not so much the the individuals that stand out for you, but the diversity of people who were entoured together in these various places. And you had people buried in there who were, they spent their lives one step above slavery. They were a laundress, a cook, a, a yard man, their whole life groveling for work for somebody else. But there's also a thriving black entrepreneurship going on that you see at the same time. People who were independent, um, you know, jewelry repairmen. Uh, it's uh, different things where they had their own business, barbers, merchants. Um, it's not doom and, it's not a doom and gloom sort of oppressive feeling you get. It's a sense of hope when you go through the death certificates. Mm-hmm. You also need to realize there's a whole bunch of funny stuff out there. I was always with the Tuskegee Project, syphilis in the black community. Uh, Tampa needs mm-hmm. to pay it. Uh, Tampa, you've got a whole bunch of syphilis in the white population, too, and there's a whole bunch of people with names that are prominent to this day with streets named after them who's got family issues with social diseases and everything else. It's a whole bunch of ugly out there, too. Um, mm-hmm. Not trying to make it prurient, but... Everybody had the same problems. You see married women mm-hmm. 
dying of peritonitis or puerperial infections, um, they went to the midwife and had an abortion and got infected and died a horrible death as a result of it. And on the death certificate, it's criminal abortion. Mm-hmm. He's, and then, by by identifying the, the causes of death with the records that you're finding, which are not always kind of together, as you were saying before, there there's three different records for each burial. Um, it sounds like you're piecing together a little more of the a a fuller picture of what happened to people in their life that led to their death or something or maybe able to even pick up on uh some trends or different things as you were mentioning with the uh pedestrian deaths and other um and other issues that that you know I guess we can't really see unless we are having that full picture of um not just who was passing away but what was that cause Exactly um I don't know if it was related to the physicians or whoever signed off on the black death certificates, but acute indigestion over and over again for some years is, uh, was it a heart attack? But, you know, acute indigestion. Mm-hmm. I mean, that means they were all bad cooks. Um, we well, have, it doesn't sound like a, a lethal condition, acute indigestion. No, it doesn't. And as a, but there's other things out there when you think today, uh, tetanus. How many parents out there are saying, I don't want to get my kid a vaccine? Within 10 days after Christmas throughout the 1920s and early 30s, there are young men, 8 years old, 11, 14, dying as a result of their Christmas present. In every case, it was a cap pistol. Mm-hmm. Somehow in its design, it pinched the skin between two of the fingers. And they mm-hmm. developed tetanus and were dead within a week mm-hmm. from the Christmas present. And mm-hmm. you see, and then also in the black community, the lack, even though, you know, there were midwives, the lack of hygienic birthing conditions, the amount of the, uh, I'm pronouncing probably wrong, purpural, um, the female genital urinary area where it's compromised during childbirth, developing infections and dying. The child lived, the mother's dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, now we give episiotomies, uh, ripping and tearing. She gets an mm-hmm. infection and she's dead three days later. Um, mm-hmm. We and had one, I mean, one case those. where the baby actually died because the mother was giving birth to it, and apparently in the outhouse, and the kid mm-hmm. fell through the hole. What's not, I mean, we wouldn't do that with our dogs or cats nowadays, and yet nobody seems to have a sense of outrage of what the hell we did. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, unfortunately, some of these systemic issues are still going on. That there's a uh, there's a crisis in black maternity right now, where um, black mothers are not getting the same level of treatment. The mortality rate for for women in the African American community and their and their babies, unfortunately, is much higher than it should be. And, you know, in that time, there was definitely a lack of facilities where um, African-Americans couldn't just go to the hospital. There were not ambulances or enough doctors that were that were willing to uh, serve in these communities. And uh, while there were may have been midwives or others who were there and during the birth, during birthing, there can be any number of emergencies or even just 
um, you know, the, it is a, um, it's a traumatic event, even if there isn't necessarily an emergency that comes along with it. And that lack of access to even maybe basic supplies when you can't walk into a, a pharmacy or a store to get alcohol and gauze or clean, uh, clean bedding, those things uh, are not perfect. Check on a gentleman who just died. His name was Adler. He's responsible for the integration of Tampa General. Mm-hmm. And came, a Jewish physician came down from up north, and uh, there's, there's a poster out there that USS did on him. And he goes over, he had to work one day a week over at uh, Clara Fry. And he went over there, and he was like, my God, we've got jaundiced babies. Um, you know, we had one or the uh, isolate or whatever to, to treat jaundice. They had a backlog storeroom of them over at Tampa General, and the kids are dying over across the river. And mm-hmm. he basically, from what I understand, went to Tampa General's head and said, every newspaper and television station in the Northeast is going to hear about this. Now, Tampa General, from what I have read, did not fully integrate until 1966, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. This was not a... Uh, we still have people alive who remember those who are in their 80s and 90s who remember when it was, sorry, you're welcome here if you're the janitor or you're 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 somebody you know working behind the scenes, but as a patient now. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a in the information that uh, Rebecca O'Sullivan shared from the University of South Florida. Um, That's going to be covered in more detail in the next episode that follows this one. But there's one slide in particular that shows um, kind of an age distribution of those who were identified at the Zion Cemetery. And the number of babies there is just really staggering, and uh, which is not unusual. It wasn't something that was, I mean, as the saying goes, if there's a cold in the rest of the community, the black community gets the flu. So infant mortality is definitely something that has been addressed uh, in you know in healthcare, but it's certainly we have a long way to go. But it's just startling to see um, how often it happened, and you know the the impact that it was having uh, on people. I imagine was very difficult. You've uncovered some things that are very ugly about the past, and some of them still echo in our present. You've also touched on a few moments that inspired you, and I want to go further into that. Where's the hope? Where's the inspiration for you in this project? You know, I got into the project. It's too crazy, even just when I think back about it, trying to show my father who had passed on that I did love him and because I had shared with you earlier, he said that on his deathbed, he thought that I had hated him my entire life. And actually, I was afraid of him because of what my other parent had portrayed him as wrongly. And that led to, with Richard Robles to the county poor farm, Paul Guzzo, the reporter, um, I met up with and had to meet with Zion and also St. Joseph's. Uh, Zion was the path he chose, and thankfully, because St. Joseph seems to be mining a dry hole of several hundred um, black 
lost people. Um, and I was supposed to be out of here 42 months ago. I was given 24 to 36 hours to live when I was put into St. Joseph's CCU. Uh, I'm in heart failure. My ejection fraction was in the teens, and I don't care who knows any of this stuff. Um, I'm diabetic. I'm HIV positive. I'm taking a hell of a lot of medications to stay alive. And I figured, all right, I'm going to be meeting these folks in whatever form they are soon enough. I can't say sucks to be you. And that's been my problem my whole life. Mm-hmm. When I see something that needs to be fixed, I can't just walk away from it. I get involved. I wish I, I wish that was different. But with the, with Zion, you know, I, I populated the Find a Grave website with the death certificates as quickly and as best as I could before the story broke from uh, Mr. Guzzo. But I looked at these other websites, and some of the cemeteries don't exist, and the people are there. And, what about their ancestors, their descendants, whatever happened to so-and-so? I was contacted by the great-granddaughter of a woman, of a man who was buried in the county poor farm in 1939. They've been looking for him since 1909. Death certificate was out there, but it's mm-hmm. not in a public way that you can Google and get. I uploaded it to this website. And then I got a 1938, a woman who, oh, my grandfather. I always wondered where he was. Um, and it's the most rewarding thing to be able to know that somebody has that, and God, it's an overused word, but closure. But also, I wish mm-hmm. people would get mad. I wish somebody would get a hold of Morgan or Morgan and just sue the living daylights out of everybody who owned or owns a cemetery who's done, excuse my language, crappy record-keeping at best and at worst has done the unholy of trying to get the land repurposed for something else. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make so lawyers rich. I'm like trying to make a... people responsible. Mm-hmm. And I was just going to say, it sounds like there's a kind of a sense of justice about this for you that um, what's happened here in many cases, it does sound uh, deeply unethical, if not criminal, but uh, it sounds like you feel there's some justice that needs to to uh, follow what you've uncovered. Yes, I do. Very, very much so. Um, it's, yeah, it's kind of funny. I've already done my prenatal arrangement. I've already got my headstone designed, prepaid. I know where I'm going. How many of these people, these adults, knowing that they were dying, okay, I know where I'm going. I'm going to have a sense of dignity, a sense of final rest. Or as a parent, back then when you had a child, that we didn't have a social security. There was no social contract to take care of you in your old age. That was your family. That child represented mm-hmm. the hope that you yourself might actually not end up at a poor farm or starving to death, as some people actually did. And... That hope, that, that, all that emotion, all that pain, all that joy, all that, to have it basically spit on by somebody else and saying, you don't matter. The hell with you. 
just because you were poor or you were brown or you were black. Try do try removing a headstone from a pet cemetery. And you will have the sheriff at your door and probably a bunch of people with pitchforks and burning torches. Nobody seems to have mm -hmm. any sense of injustice. And that's what really, mm -hmm. really ticks me off. And the people who were mm -hmm. ugly, who did the uglies are still in our society down there today, and many of them are talking with great fondness for their great-grandparents who may have had their fingers in this ugly pie. I, I can't say again how much I appreciate the, the work that you've done. It's been no small effort on your part, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who uh, maybe they'll they'll never know that you're the person that identified that missing uh, document and uploaded it to a website that they're using to uh, now kind of put the pieces of their past back together. So on behalf of everybody who may not know, I want to say that uh, a thank you as well. This has been an incredible journey, and I appreciate that you have uh, you've made it possible, not just for this episode of my podcast, but for uh, the city of Tampa to have a rec uh, kind of a reconciliation with its past and to bring dignity back to those who once called this community home. The people who don't have streets and bridges and parks named after them, they built it just as much as those people did. Absolutely. Thank you, well, because through podcasts like this, you can get a story out rather than in a two-and-a-half-minute clip. Mm -hmm. And that's the purpose here, is to really go deep. And you have taken us on, taken us, uh, taken us pretty far, Ray. Thank you. Thank you so much. Welcome to Backpage. This is a space where I give you additional insights into how the content for the show is created. I'm literally standing in my backyard just about to release this episode. So if you're listening to this tonight, then I just recorded this a few minutes ago. Like you might be able to hear the cicadas in the background. As I said before, I started hearing about the rediscovery of graveyards a couple years ago before I started doing the podcast. And just the more they came to life, the more my interest increased. I finally saw another story and then started searching for Ray online. I saw a completely unrelated article on Facebook that mentioned an award received when he retired and used that um, as a way to just kind of start that, that effort to locate him. I messaged someone uh, in that group and they uh, asking if they knew Ray and they did and they and I told them why I wanted to get in touch with them and they were nice enough to connect the dots luckily I got the message back and uh, Ray and I just started emailing he shared some of his documents and stories with me and uh, it took a little while but we um, eventually were able to set a date to record also, in the interim, I connected with Becky at the University of South Florida, uh, who is with the Florida Public Archaeology Network. And um, with her as well, I initially just sent an email, but it didn't. Nothing came back right away. 
luckily my work takes me to the college campus on a regular basis before the pandemic shut everything down. And in my running around, I realized that I was right next to where her office should have been. And I dropped in, she wasn't there, but I left a message on her door, a little handwritten sticky note. And uh, again, just followed up and we finally got connected and uh, I was able to uh, go out and record part two of this two part special. As I read the background information that uh, did I do in, as part of the research for the show, one of the, the deceased that Ray mentions and he said of all the articles and documents that he found, the one about Tom Brown was one that really stuck with him. And it's startling to say the least. And this is a gentleman who's African-American and was executed uh, almost 100 years ago now for the murder of a white man in Lutz, which is about maybe 15 or 20 minutes north of Tampa. And the article itself is actually, I got a copy of an image of the newspaper and it's too big to go on uh, any of the social media, but uh, you'll see the snippet in the uh, in the content for the show. But the whole article is on my face is on the uh, the webpage jmansjournal.com. What really is startling about that is just the narrative of how this man ended up being executed. So he apparently um, was arrested, and then would gave some sort of confession. And then during the trial, he said that he was told if he didn't repudiate his earlier confession and, and admit to the crime, then he was going to be turned over to a lynch mob. Now, remember, this is the 1920s. The Tampa Police Department and the KKK uh, were working together in some instances and it, lynching was not uncommon. So it was. So, it, of course, he then repudiates his story and then just says, um, that he was actually innocent and he's actually surrounded by numerous community members in this article it talks about how uh, ministers from the african-american community were there with him right up until the final moments before he was hanged this doesn't sound like you know some bad guy who did a bad thing and and you know was executed because he committed murder which he admitted to this sounds like uh it, it was a lynching either way you cut it. That there's definitely more to that story than is printed in the newspaper and the, and the one article that I saw. And um, it's definitely, uh, it, def it just still raises the hair on the back of my neck. So I'm in this moment resisting the urge to dig further and go more into that story. But um, what is there is available for you to check out on the, on the, my webpage. Please do. Thank you for listening as always. I hope you've enjoyed this journey.